welcome to you all, and of course, a very, very special welcome to Ursula Owen and to Margaret Atwood. Uh, we are lucky tonight to be here. Uh, and a special welcome and thanks to the University of Worcester, who've helped sponsor uh, the event this evening. Also to the Canadian Council for the Arts and our very own Arts Council, an ever-present uh, force for good for the Ledbury Poetry Festival. Ursula is going to introduce Margaret. I'm going to say a very brief word or two about Ursula for those who don't know her. A refugee from Nazi Germany came to Britain, our luck that she came to Britain. She worked as an editor, she worked as a publisher, she was one of the founding team at Virago in the 1970s, and we all remember fondly those green spines on our bookshelves. She's a champion of fairness and of free speech and an enemy of censorship. These are all good things. She is a trustee and an extremely good friend of the Ledbury Poetry Festival. We are blessed to have such friends, and we are doubly blessed to have Ursula and Margaret here with us this evening. Thank you, Peter, for those kind words. Uh, it's not easy to introduce someone about whom so much has been said and written, and someone who in so many remarkable ways speaks for herself. I once read an anonymous online comment about her which simply said, it is astounding how many quality words flow out of this woman. I agree. <laughs> And so there are many reasons for saying very little, and Margaret herself was strict with me about not speaking about her for too long. But I am going to speak about her a bit, as much as anything, because I'm so delighted that she's come to Ledbury, something we've been talking about for years. It's wonderful that you're here. I've known Margaret Atwood since the late 70s, when we started publishing her novels of Virago beginning with the extraordinary surfacing which made the deepest impression on me, and continuing with a long list of novels, short stories and poems. And she incidentally was the loyalist of authors staying with us, a feminist press, not without its naysayers, through thick and thin. I don't want to sound like Boris Johnson. <laughs> And incidentally, she said that she never intended or claimed to be a feminist writer. When she began to describe the world around her, she said she became popular with the movement because, quotes, the women in my novels suffer because most of the women I talk to seem to have suffered. She certainly never writes within those difficult restraints of, of an external ideology, but she's always had a deep understanding of power, as her fellow novelist Ali Smith says, and the way power can be used and go wrong. She's a political person in the best sense of the word. Many of you probably know something of her early years. She was born in Ottawa in 1939, and through much of her childhood, she and her older brother Harold, Harold spent about half, half the year in the backwoods of North Quebec, 
missing weeks of school as her parents took them to the woods where her father studied insects. She started to write very early, and at the age of 16, she knew she wanted to be a professional writer. Just to give you a sense of the scale of her achievement, and I probably might get even have got the numbers wrong, she has published 17 books of poetry, 20 novels, 10 books of non-fiction, eight collections of short fiction, eight children's books, and one graphic novel, as well as a number of small press editions in poetry and fiction. Each one is written with a subtlety, brilliance, and sense of vision we have now come to expect of her. They won prestigious prizes and critical accolades, and they are all, though very different, addictively readable. We're here now for her poetry, which she's going to read to us. Her first published work was, in fact, a book of poetry, Double Persephone, published when she was 22. Her first two volumes immediately won prestigious prizes. Her latest collection is Doors, The Doors. Her accumulating interests and concerns are, of course, reflected in her poetry. Her deep interest in animals, in nature, in the environment, in politics and sexual politics. The pull towards art on the one hand and towards life on the other. The significance of opposites, self, others, male, female, nature, man, preoccupation with grief and mortality. And always the language is memorable, robust, clear, her wit and humour ever-present, an irony, something she's famous for, always lurking. Now I really am going to stop and ask Margaret to read. She'll read and talk for about 35 minutes and then we'll take questions from the audience for the last 20 minutes or so. So I'd like to introduce you to Margaret. Ursula made me do it. <laughs> it took her a couple of years, but she, uh, she's always been very persevering. And um, I did ask her whether I should begin by singing you Canada's unofficial national anthem, which is called Canada's Really Big. <laughs> it's by a group called the Arrogant Worms. And uh, she said that I should, so since I always do what she says, um, I'm going to do it. Doom, 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 doom. When I look around me, I can't believe what I see. It seems as if this country has lost its will to live. The economy is lousy. We barely have an army, but we can still stand proudly, because Canada's really big. <laughs> We're the second largest country on this planet Earth. And if Russia keeps on shrinking, then soon we'll be the first. As long as we keep Quebec. As long as we keep Quebec. The USA has tanks and Switzerland has banks, but they can keep them thanks because they just don't amount because when you get down to it, you find out what the truth is. It isn't what you do with it. It's the size that counts. <laughs> 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 
Most people will tell you that France is pretty large, but you can put 14 Frances into this land of ours. <laughs> It'd take a lot of work. <laughs> It'd take a whole lot of work. We're larger than Malaysia, almost as big as Asia. We're bigger than Australia, and it's a continent. So big we seldom bother to go see one another. <laughs> Though we often go to other countries for vacations. <laughs> Our mountains are very pointy. Our prairies are not. <laughs> The rest is kind of bumpy. But man, do we have a lot. <laughs> we've got a whole lot of land. We've got a whole lot of land. So stand up and be proud and sing it very loud. We stand out from the crowd because Canada's really Yes, you don't want to repeat that experience very often. <laughs> But now you have it. So I'm going to uh, change the tone now and uh, read some uh, poems, most of which are not yet published. And the first one I'm going to read is called um, Late Poems. These are the late poems. Most poems are late, of course, too late, like a letter sent by a sailor that arrives after he's drowned. Too late to be of help, such letters, and late poems are similar. They arrive as if through water. Whatever it is has already happened. The battle, the joyful sunny day, the moonlit falling into lust, the parting words. The poem washes ashore like flotsam, or late, as in late for supper, almost everything's eaten. Words like plight and vanquished, like linger and a while. Words like scoundrel and forlorn, and love, death, joy, old thrice-gnawed bones, rusted spells, worn songs. It's late. It's very late, too late for dancing. Still, sing what you can. Turn up the light, sing on, sing on. So Ursula said that I should talk to you a little bit about uh, what the occasion for the poem is and some kinds of things like that. This one is called September Mushrooms. And it's exactly what it says. <laughs> it's about mushrooms <laughs> and the kind of mushrooms that appear in September. <laughs> so I, I go to quite a few mushroomy landscapes. Uh, the Boro Forest in Canada has lots of mushrooms in it. And in that, we have um, something in common with Finland. They're very keen on mushrooms there. So this is called September Mushrooms. I missed them again this year. I was immersed elsewhere when the weather broke and enough rain came. 
In the tree shade, stealthily, they nosed up through the sandy loam and the damp leaf litter. A sliver of color, then another, bringing their cryptic news of what goes on down there. The slow dissolve of lignum, the filaments, the tiny nodes like fists, assembling their nets and mists. Some were bright red, some purple, some brown, some white, some lemon yellow. Through the night they nudged, unfurling like moist fans, like sponges, like radar dishes listening. What did they hear in our human world of so-called light and air? What word did they send back down before they withered? Was it beware? Look, the remnants, a leathery globe of dusty spores, a nibbled pebbly moon, a dried half-sphere, a blackened ear. Now I'm going to read you a Canadian poem. You know it's a Canadian poem because it's got wolves in it. And <laughs> you don't have any wolves. <laughs> you did have wolves, but you don't have them anymore. Short takes on wolves. One, a wolf in pain admits nothing. His dinner bit him. It was a miscalculation and now it will be a disaster. You can't go far with a ripped foot. Among wolves, no doctors. Two, a wolf is courteous up to a point. You have to watch their ears. Forward, they're willing to listen. Back, you've bored them. <laughs> Three, sit in the dark. Keep quiet, don't light that cigarette or smear on the black fly goo. It's not a speed dating venue. It's not a zoo. You want to see the wolf or demand your money back, but the wolf doesn't want to see you. Four, wolf nightmares involve cars, long needles, iron muzzles, cramped cages with hard bars, creatures who smell like you. Wolf happy dreams, on the other hand, are of endless taiga, dens dug under stones, limping and stupid caribou, their tender bones. This one is called At the Translation Conference, and it's about being at the translation conference. <laughs> What's it about really? Well, actually, it's really about that. Uh, so the encountering people whose languages are constructed quite differently uh, from ones you might be used to, and also dealing with my own translators who write me letters uh, that say things like this. So at the translation conference. In our language, we have no words for he or she or him or her. It helps if you put a skirt or tie or some such thing on the first page. <laughs> In the case of a rape, it, also, it helps also to know the age, a child, an elderly, 
so we can set the tone. We also have no future tense. What will happen is already happening. But you can add a word like tomorrow or else Wednesday. We will know what you mean. These words are for things that can be eaten. The things that can't be eaten have no words. Why would you need a name for them? This applies to plants, birds, and mushrooms used in curses. On this side of the table, women do not say no. There is a word for no, but women do not say it. It would be too abrupt. To say no, you can say perhaps. You will be understood on most occasions. <laughs> on that side of the table, there are six classes, unborn, dead, alive, things you can drink, things you can't drink, things that cannot be said. Is it a new word or an old word? Is it obsolete? Is it formal or familiar? How offensive is it on a scale of one to 10? Did you make it up? At the far end of the table, right next to the door, are those who deal in hazards. If they translate the wrong word, they might be killed or at the least imprisoned. There is no list of such hazards. They'll, they'll find out only after when it might not matter to them about the tie or skirt or whether they can say no. In cafes, they sit in corners, backs to the wall. What will happen is already happening. This one is called Tracking the Rain, and it's about that thing you do when it hasn't rained for a long time, which is you obsessively go onto your computer and turn on the weather channel and turn on the radar and start looking for whether there might be any rain. And I know you all do that, because <laughs> I do it. Tracking the rain. A mist of thin fat yellows the air. We breathe hot pudding. The leaves in the garden are crisp like antique taffeta, the former garden. A touch and they shatter. Forget the lawn, the former lawn, though the dandelions prosper. They've outlasted the, our flimsy hybrids. Their roots grip baked clay. All day it's been pending, the rain. It gathers, it withholds. We thumb our touch screens, consulting the odds on the radar maps. Green puddles flow from west to east, vanishing before they hit the dot that's us. A stretched red dot, like a comic book voice devoid of words, like an upside-down teardrop. That's where we're living now, inside this dot, the color of a heated toaster inside this dry red bubble. We stand on the non-lawn, arms outstretched, mouths open. Will it be burn or drown? Though we've forgotten the incantation, the chant, the dance, we invoke a vertical ocean 
pure blue, pure water. Let it come down. And following up in the cheering you up department, <laughs> I will read a self-explanatory poem called, O Children. O oh, children, will you grow up in a world without birds? Will there be crickets where you are? Will there be asters? Clams at a minimum, maybe not clams. We know there will be waves, not much life needed for those. A breeze, a storm, a cyclone, ripples as well, stones. Stones are consoling. There will be sunsets as long as there is dust. There will be dust. Oh, children, will you grow up in a world without songs, without pines, without mosses? Will you spend your life in a cave, a sealed cave with an oxygen line until there's a power failure? Will your eyes blank out like the white eyes of sunless fish in there? What will you wish for? Oh, children, will you grow up in a world without ice, without mice, without lichens? Oh, children, will you grow up? And now for the other old people in the room. <laughs> you remember the war. The war, right after the war. So during the war, there were a lot of things that you never saw because uh, they weren't there. Um, and they were food items that came back or appeared for the first time after the war. I never saw an avocado until 1961. Oranges were pretty scarce and coconuts were when they first appeared, things of wonder. So this one is called Coconut. There were more things to buy right after the war. Oranges made a comeback, and black and white morphed into rainbow. Not yet avocados, though suddenly in the slack tide of winter in our cellar, a coconut materialized like the round, hard, hairy breast of some wooden Sasquatch. Why the cellar? That's where the axe was. First we drove a nail into each of the three soft eyes and drained out the sweetish water. Then we stood the globe on a block and hacked it apart. The pieces clattered over the floor which was not clean back then in the age of coal and cinders. First taste of sheer ambrosia, though mixed with ash and the shards of destruction, as heaven always is if you read the texts closely. This one is called Fatal Light Awareness. There's um, something going on in Canada called the Fatal Light Awareness Program, otherwise known as FLAP. And uh, it's trying to do something about 
uh, one of the big, one of the four big causes of of bird deaths in North America, which is um, glass window collisions. So this is fatal light awareness, and um, fatal light is when everybody leaves their lights on in their high rises at nighttime. Kills a lot of birds. Uh, because the birds get very confused by the light, they fly around, sometimes they crash into the windows and sometimes they just get exhausted and uh, fall down. And for a while this program was going around the bottoms of the high-rise, sweeping up the birds and counting them until the high-rises got them prohibited from doing that. Fatal light awareness. A thrush crashed into my window, one lovely voice the less, killed by glass as mirror, a rich magician's illusion of trees, and by my laziness, why didn't I hang the lattice? Up there in the night air, among the high rises, music dies as you fire up your fake sunrises. Your light is the bird's last darkness. All over everywhere their feathers are falling, warm, not like snow, though melting away to nothing. We are a dying symphony. No bird knows this, but us, we know what our night magic does, our dark light magic. So this one is called um, Midway Island Albatross. And I'm sure you've seen these kinds of pictures. Um, Midway Island is where the albatross used to breed. And uh, it's a wash in uh, plastic that has come ashore. And the uh, albatrosses are feeding it to their uh, young, which of course kills them. Um, so. The pictures are very colorful. Inside the bare bones ribs, it's all bright color. A tag, a ribbon, a failed balloon, a strip of silver foil, a spring, a wheel, a coil. What should have been there inside the sad bag of wispy feathers, inside the dead bird child? It should have been the fuel for wings. It should have been up soaring over a clean sea. Not this glittering mess, this festering nest work. I think um, The Wizard of Oz is a very important book. <laughs> it's, um, sort of a seminal book for thinking about the United States of America, among other things. Uh, so you go in search of a magic person, and it turns out to be a, a little old fraud behind a curtain. <laughs> Alas. Uh, but one of the people who goes on that quest is the, is the Tin Woodman. and. Uh, he goes along in, in search of a heart. He's been turned to uh, tin little by little by cutting off 
by making mistakes with his axe and um, getting those parts replaced with tin. So now he's entirely tin. Some of us can relate. <laughs> the tin wood woman gets a massage. On the flannel sheet, in the pose of a dead man's float face down, the hands descend, ignore the skin, the xylophone of spine, evade the blobs and lobes, head for deep tissue, go for the little hinges that creak like tiny frogs, twang the catgut strings of the tight, bruised tendons. How rusted shut I am, how locked, how oxidized. Old baked bean can, tin woodwoman left in the rain. Movement equals pain, how corroded. Who was it used to complain he didn't have a brain? Some straw man, cloth boy. Me, it's the heart that, that's the part lacking. I used to want one, a dainty cushion of red silk dangling from a blood ribbon fit for sticking pins in, but I've changed my mind. Hearts hurt. And this is the last one, which is called Blackberries. In the early morning, an old woman is picking blackberries in the shade. It will be too hot later, but right now there is dew. Some berries fall, those are for squirrels. Some are unripe, reserved for bears. Some go into the metal bowl. Those are for you, so you may taste them just for a moment. That's good times, one little sweetness after another, then quickly gone. Once this old woman I'm conjuring up for you would have been my grandmother. Today it's me. Years from now it might be you if you're quite lucky. The hands reaching in among the leaves and spines were once my mother's. I've passed them on. Decades ahead, you'll study your own temporary hands and you'll remember. Don't cry, this is what happens. Look, the steel bowl is almost full, enough for all of us. The blackberries gleam like glass like the glass ornaments we hang on trees in December to remind ourselves to be grateful for snow. Some berries occur in sun, but they are smaller. It's as I always told you, the best ones grow in shadow. Margaret's happy to answer questions or address whatever you want to address, address her with. Um, there's someone, yes. 
Thank you. Um, amazing to hear you. Absolutely amazing. Um, and just to say before the question, I teach, and I, I would say every student I have taught and studied is utterly transformed um, by the journey that you take them through with your novels. So thank you for that. Um, and as someone who knows your novels but not really your poetry so well, could you just talk to us a little bit about how, whether for you it's different, um, the whole business of writing poetry to writing your novels as an experience? Yes. There it is. Where's my mic? Here it is. Yes. Can you, can you hear now, now you can probably hear better. So I'm just going to move it up a bit. Um, I, have a, I have a theory which I can't ever test uh, because you can't wire up a poet in the throes of uh, writing a poem because you never know when they're going to do it. Whereas with, with novelists, you kind of do know. No, novels are a job. Um, it is um, one part inspiration and nine parts perspiration, and you just have to keep at it uh, because a lot of it is actually quite boring. There's a there's a manuscript library in Reykjavik in Iceland which has a marginalia note in one of the medieval manuscripts and it says, writing is boring. And, <laughs> and you know, it's the rewriting, the editing, the going over it and all of that. Um, it's just hard work. So, so that, that part, you could wire somebody up and record their brain thing, but but I, 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 I guess that the poetry part is closer to music, um, to certain kinds of mathematical pattern solving and, and to, to pattern, patterning in general. But I, but I can't prove it. And uh, the process is quite different. Uh, with the novel, you have, a, you have an idea of what you're going to work out and then you start working it out and that can take two years. So with the poem it could take 25 minutes. Um, that's, that's lyric poetry, it's not narrative poetry. Narrative poetry uh, book-length poems which are now having a bit of a resurgence. Um, they're very popular in the 19th century. Um, so they're, they're coming back a bit but the kinds of short poems that, that I write generally don't take two years. Although if they, if they don't work out, you might put them in a drawer and come back to them later, but you're not going to be spending um, five hours a day on a 25-line poem for two years, unless you're really, <laughs> unless you're on some kind of drug. <laughs> Your, the poems you've read, you said, are, may, are mainly not yet published. So they're poems you've written recently. That's right. So, so I'm putting them together now, and I'll probably publish and them next year. very gloomy about the no, world. I don't think they're that gloomy. <laughs> <laughs> about the world? Everything's relative. Um, well, <laughs> no. I've got some cheerier ones in there. I just didn't happen yeah. to read no, them. No, I wasn't complaining. I was just <laughs> noticing that, that your... They were kind of like horror films, some of them. About I've got some even more horrible ones <laughs> <laughs> that, that are actually descriptions <laughs> of horror films. <laughs> I was yeah. just interested in whether, 
what what part mood plays in it? You say it takes twenty five. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, no, the the act of the act of writing is in itself an optimistic thing, no matter what you're writing about. Because think what's involved. Uh, you you think you're you will finish whatever you're writing. That's pretty hopeful. Uh, you think that you will get it published, that's pretty hopeful. You think that somebody will read it, that's pretty hopeful too. And then you think that, that's, that somebody will like it, which is even more hopeful. So uh, people who throw okay. messages inside bottles into the ocean are expecting a recipient. They, they don't know who it will be, but they're not throwing them in there because they think they're going to drown. So, um, so any act of writing is presupposing a future just by, yeah. so in my novel Oryx and Craig, the central character does not keep a journal like Robinson Crusoe because he doesn't think there's anybody there who will be able to read it. Right. Whereas Robinson Crusoe does. Um, thank you, Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> and he, he does get rescued, does he not? So yeah. I'll just mention the Future Library of Norway project which got a lot of attention when we launched it because it's so completely hopeful. It's, um, uh, it will last for 100 years. And they've planted a forest in Norway. They've planted the little trees, and those trees will grow for 100 years. And in each year of those 100 years, a different author will submit a secret manuscript, only two copies, inside a box. And the boxes will accumulate for 100 years. And in the 100th year, which is 2014, all of the boxes will be opened. And enough trees will be cut from this forest, which will have grown, to make the paper for the future Library of oh. Norway anthology. And uh, I was the first person who did this. And uh, one of the things that goes along with is you're not allowed to tell what's in the box. So uh, it has to be made of words. But that's all. It could be one word. It could be a poem. It could be a screenplay, a letter, a laundry list, um, a novel in the box. So I went to Norway with my box. I thought they were going to say, what's in the box at customs? And I would have to say, I'm not allowed to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> then I would be arrested. But that didn't happen. <laughs> and we went into the forest. And um, the forester made a speech, the librarian made a speech, the artist who was a Scottish uh, person called Katie Patterson made a speech <coughs> about slow time and I made a speech and I handed over the box and I don't know where it is but it will uh, reappear and people were very interested in that because it was so hopeful. So the forest will grow, there will be people, uh, the library will still be there the people will know how to read. The people will be interested in reading. Um, and all of those are very hopeful things, are they not? They are. No they matter are. what. So no matter what's in the box, it's just hopeful by mere, the mere fact of its existence. Yeah. I'm sorry I said it. <laughs> <laughs> I got a nice long answer anyway. I wanted to ask how important it is for your poetry to be heard as opposed to being read. I, th I think all poetry assumes that it will be heard unless it's the visual kind of poetry that is working with patterns on the page. Uh, so I, I think it's, um, uh, I think even if I'm not reading it 
out loud, the raider is raiding it out loud in their head. <coughs> because there's a, a lot of um, uh, tactile audio value. It's, words are, are sound. And uh, something like a novel is, is really like a musical score. It's black marks on a page. It's not music again until the musician plays it. And similarly, a book is black marks on a page until the uh, reader turns it back into sound by reading it. And just like music, um, it may be a piece of music, but everybody who plays it is going to play it slightly differently. It will be their interpretation of it. And every reading of every poem and every book is unique to that reader because each person will bring to it who they are uh, just as the musician brings his or her knowledge of music to the playing of the music. That's pretty good, isn't it? But <laughs> uh, <it's pretty> good. <laughs> See Hello. Uh, good evening. Um, I, uh, Ursula reminded us of your huge body of work in her introduction, but I was intrigued to know if there was anything that you wish you had written that you could pass off as your own and just insert into that body of work. Oh, um, a lot of things. <laughs> yes, and congratulations. I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> you win. <laughs> I think she should have a prize, don't you? Um, yes. Uh, that's a really interesting question, but the list would be long. You know, it would really be very long, a lot of things. So the, the collected works of Shakespeare minus Henry VIII. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure he was ashamed of himself afterwards. It's, it's just a horrible piece of sucking up, but never mind. Um, yeah, so a great admiration for, for, for that kind of inventiveness, and it's just really quite amazing when you come to think of it. Um, of course, I wish I'd written Wuthering Heights, and I, I quite, uh, it, it's, it's very um, inventively structured. It's kind of a model of how to do a romantic novel, because if you'd done it with, um, you know, Heathcliff's diary, it just would have been quite stupid. <laughs> Kathy says, Heathcliff, he's such a dish, but my God, is he ever smelly. Um, <laughs> wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Uh, so some books I have great admiration for, but I don't wish I'd written them, if you see what I mean. So we could go on and on into the night about this, um, but I won't. <laughs> I don't wish I'd written Paradise Lost, but I, I really admire some of the passages in it. Hello. Um, I got to study your book, The Handmaid's Tale, for my English A-level exams we just sat, and it really blew me away. And I was just wondering, do you hold much hope for future generations in terms of global warming and climate change? Oh, it's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm quite keen on the young people who are doing e Extinction Rebellion. Um, because they're actually finally getting the attention of politicians on this issue, which a lot of people, uh, not just myself, but going back generations, have been talking about for a long time. 
the Club of Rome did a, a report on this in 1972, saying what would happen unless we did this and that and this and that, and we didn't do it, and, and here we are, they were right. Um, so so it, it kind of delights me that there's now enough critical mass and, and politicians are looking at the fact that these kids who might be 15 are gonna be voting pretty soon. So in Canada for the first time uh, this year, it has become an election issue. It never has been one before. So yes, and if you want to cheer yourself up, you can go online to a, a project called, to a website called Project Drawdown and uh, you'll feel quite peppy after you have read that. So it is still reversible, uh, but two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and if you take the other one and do nothing, and if the oceans die, that's kind of it for us in very succinct terms. No oxygen, you know. <laughs> Anyone got their hand up? You see, I could have been much gloomier. <laughs> um, you mentioned writing as a, an act of hope, yes. but have you ever sort of had moments of hopelessness in your writing? You, have you ever looked at something and thought, oh, this is just bad, or not kind of had writer's block, not been able to, to okay, write something? Okay, that's not about the content. It's about whether I thought I could or could not pull it off, Right. Yes, I, I, had, I have two abandoned novels, and uh, I'd gotten quite far into them, so 200 pages down the drain, but, but I know why uh, they weren't workable, and if you want me to tell you that, I will. <laughs> yes, re-voting on that. Okay, so the first one that I had to abandon, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm quite a messy writer as a rule. I sort of just plunge in, it's like mud pies. But for this one, I thought, I'm going to be more organized. Fatal mistake. <laughs> so I got some filing cards. This is before there were computers. This is before there were computers. <laughs> before there were lattes. You don't believe me, but there was a time. Um, yeah, so we were writing on typewriters. Remember that? Carbon paper. Does it ring a bell? Um, yeah, so I got some filing cards to help me be organized. And um, I decided to have eight characters, already a mistake. Um, and each of the eight characters was going to have a chapter in each of five sections. Quick mental arithmetic <laughs> will reveal <laughs> that there are going to be 40 chapters. So I started on the scheme. And I did get up to 200 pages, and, and we knew quite a lot about the eight characters. We knew what they had for breakfast, we knew something about their relatives, we knew what they looked like, uh, et cetera. But by, by the 200th page, nothing had happened. <laughs> so I, thought, I thought, Proust, I'm not. Uh, and anyway, stuff does happen in Proust. So, and, and even in, in Samuel Beckett, things happen. You just, you just have to be attuned to them. <laughs> uh, but nothing had happened, so I thought, this is just not going to work. And um, I had to stop writing it. And the other one, I was, 
I was writing actually just before I started The Handmaid's Tale, and I was writing it in a stone fisherman's cottage in Blakeney before it got posh. And uh, I got my first chillblains. I was so excited. It was so Dickensian. I thought, wow, it's really, wow, 19th century. Um, so anyway, I was writing along, and, and I had in this one too many time levels so that even I was getting confused. <laughs> and at the moment at which I realized that I was going into the stone fisherman's cottage, and instead of working at my novel, I was reading all the historical romances that summer visitors had left behind. <laughs> they were all about people like gay Lord Robert and uh, Mary Queen of Scots, so ask me anything about that. <laughs> and I thought, this is, I'm not very interested in my novel. And I wasn't very interested in it, so I stopped writing it. So if you're not interesting yourself, you know, it's going to be pretty fatal. <laughs> you're not going to be able to interest the reader either. This is somebody there. Hand up. Thank you. You said a little bit about your process writing novels and your process writing poetry. Can you do them both, not quite at the same time, but can you do them both in the same day? Do you find you sometimes stop writing a novel with an idea about a poem? No. <laughs> no, it seems to alternate. Uh, so either I'm writing a novel or I'm not writing a novel. And if I'm not writing a novel, I might be writing poetry or I might not be writing poetry. I might be doing something altogether different, such as not writing anything. <laughs> <laughs> would, you, would you round it off by, have you got a couple more poems you could read us? Well, let's vote on that. Would you rather have two more questions or, because you can have those two. So poems. something you're, okay. I'm, I'm deciding. You're a poems. bit of a rat, Ursula. <laughs> she, she was always quite difficult. As a, <laughs> That's what they called us, difficult women. Yes, there you are. And so you got called that too. Yeah, I certainly did, yes. Yes, I also got. I also got the most wonderful thing was, which was she thinks like a man. Oh. <laughs> Put a comma in that. She thinks like a man. <laughs> oh yes, it's so dangerous. I'm I'm doing a bit of work on on Medea right now, and one of the things Euripides says about her is you you have to look out for the intelligent women. They're basically just the worst. <laughs> you wanted another poem, you're going to get one. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for. But I'm going to let you vote. Um, mean or gloomy? <laughs> mean. All right. Mean. Every, okay, this poem is called Everyone Else's Sex Life. <laughs> Everyone else's sex life seems so impossible. Surely not, we think. Surely not this into that. Not such a dirty mouth and such bad teeth. Those cooked prunes, those wattles. Please, keep your clothes on. They exist for a reason. <laughs> 
to save you from yourself, your own voyeur. Nobody looks like a movie star, not even movie stars on their days off, rambling along the street, hunting for decent eats and anonymity without luck. Nobody except to themselves in their own heads when drunk, or if they're narcissists when sober, or when in love. Oh yes, in love. That demented rose red circus tent whose half-light forgives all visuals. Fig leaves are lovers and softens our own brains and the pain of our sawdust pratfalls. So tempting that midway faux marble arch, both funfair and classical. So Greek, so Barnum, such a beacon with a sign in pink neon. Love this way in. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Sorry? There you go. <laughs> One more. One more. One okay. More. Oh, all right. So let me see. <laughs> what sort of a choice shall I give you this time? How about... Um, Aliens or werewolves? Aliens. Aliens. All right. That was pretty prompt. <laughs> what have you got against werewolves? <laughs> what if I add in female werewolves? Would you vote differently? <laughs> yes. Okay. Aliens, hands up. <laughs> Female werewolves, all right. F female werewolves have it. <laughs> you swung that pretty slightly. I did. <laughs> yes, I've been watching the British Parliament. <laughs> Update on werewolves. And this comes from watching a lot of werewolf movies, just so you know. In the old days, all werewolves were male. They burst through their blue jean clothing as well as their own split skins, exposed themselves in parks, howled at the moonshine, those things frat boys do. Went too far with the pigtail yanking, growled down into the pink and wriggling females who cried, wee, 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 all the way to the bone. Heck, it was only flirting, <laughs> plus a candid sense of fun. See Jane run. But now it's different, no longer gender specific. Now it's a global threat. Long-legged women sprint through ravines and furry warm-ups, a pack of kinky models in sado French Vogue get-ups and airbrushed short-term memories bent on no penalties rampage. Look at their red-rimmed paws. Look at their gnashing eyeballs. Look at the backlit gauze of their full moon subversive halos. 
hairy all over this bell dam, and it's not a sweater. Oh, freedom, freedom and power, they sing as they lope over bridges, bums to the wind, ripping out throats on footpaths, pissing off brokers. Tomorrow they'll be back in their middle management black and Jimmy Choo's with hours they can't remember and first date's blood on the stairs. They'll make some calls. Goodbye. It isn't you, it's me. I can't say why. They'll dream of sprouting tales at sales meetings right in the audio visuals. They'll have addictive hangovers and ruined nails. <laughs> Well, <laughs> there you go.